All right. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to uh, Luke 1 this morning. We are um, in Luke 1, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, the third gospel in the New Testament. And uh, we're going to look at the story leading up to the story of Luke 2. And uh, so the, the title of our sermon series this year, uh, leading up to Christmas, is called Joy to the World. And most of us probably learned uh, the song, the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, when we were kids. It's, a, of course, a very festive uh, song. Um, I don't know that you can sing, Joy to the World, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. I don't know if you can sing that song without a smile on your face or just feel good uh, all over the place. I love uh, the song, Joy to the World, because it's a song of hope. It's a song that reminds us that God has come into the world. Now, the interesting thing uh, about Joy to the World is uh, when it was originally written by Isaac Watts, it was not written as a Christmas carol. It was not written at all thinking about Jesus coming into the world. Uh, it was written uh, as a poem, uh, as a paraphrase of Psalm 98. This idea that God has come into the world and that uh, in Isaac Watts' mind as he was rewriting Psalm 98 as a poem is that Jesus is coming again. And so this is that season in which we live, the, the already but not yet, joy to the world and the idea of course, the Christmas carol that we think of as joy to the world is preparing our hearts. Let every heart prepare him room. It's this idea that Jesus is coming and we need uh, to get our hearts ready again and again and again. And of course, that's what preparing uh, for Christmas is all about. It's preparing our hearts, preparing every heart to receive uh, Jesus in our lives. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to be reading uh, Luke 2. Uh, even people who don't uh, regularly go to church oftentimes show up uh, at Christmas, on Christmas Eve to hear the very familiar story of Luke 2. And I thought this year, uh, we would kind of uh, look at the backstory, kind of all the events or many of the events that were leading up to um, uh, Mary and Joseph um, and that, that pilgrimage uh, they took uh, to Bethlehem. And I like this, this idea of, of, of joy to the world uh, as we think about that. Um, that's the world in which Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, that's the world in which they lived. There was not much joy to the world. There was filled with darkness. And, and I love the imagery um, that Bridget created for us as we're thinking about this, this dark earth in which um, all that is going on and this, the, the joy comes from the heavens uh, to the earth. Isn't it interesting that we are living in a day and time where it doesn't feel like there's much joy to the world in our own society? I mean, you can't hope but uh, turning on the news or opening the newspaper, it seems like the world is on fire. There are wars, of course, going on in the Middle East, in Europe, in Africa. It seems like about every place you go, there's violence and destruction uh, going on. And, and then we think about our own nation and the division and the hatred and the ugliness that is going on. So, I mean, you don't even have to travel, get on a plane and travel overseas. I mean, there's so much darkness in our own nation, even in our own community, the anger, the bitterness among people in our community. And gosh, you know what? You probably don't even have to travel very out, far outside your neighborhood. We just had this great gathering of Thanksgiving, you know, where family people get together 
And maybe your Thanksgiving was a little tense this year, um, or maybe because of who wasn't at the table uh, this year for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, we like to think is, gosh, it's this feel-good time where we all come together, we love one another, kind of this kumbaya moment. But Thanksgiving can be really, really hard uh, for many people because people aren't gathering, people don't feel welcome, people don't feel invited to the table. So Maybe there is not much joy to the world, even in your own family, in your own extended family. Brokenness of relationships. Or maybe there are health issues going on in your family, and you can think of your loved ones, or maybe even you. There's not much joy to the world because you're dealing with a health crisis. It's just like, ah, doesn't feel very joy to the world. And so this morning, I thought we, as we launch into this new sermon series called Joy to the World, it's this invitation to experience God's joy again. God coming from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and inviting us again to experience God's joy. All right, if you're at Luke 1, I'm going to invite us to bow our heads as we have a prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a God who continues, uh, who came into the world and continues to come into the world. That God, that you, as we sang about this morning, you continue to perform miracles in the midst of darkness and brokenness. And so Lord, as we read your word this morning, maybe for some of us it's a very familiar passage, a familiar story. Others of us are hearing it and like, oh yeah, those are the details. I kind of forgot about that. God, give us all that common mind and heart to just be open to receive what you want to speak to us today. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Someone once said, uh, a pastor experiences or sees people at their best. A lawyer sees people at their worst. And a doctor sees them just as they are. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture written by Luke. Luke was a doctor. And why it's important for us to understand Luke's perspective is because he sees through the lens of a doctor. Kind of like that old dragnet uh, TV show, Joe Friday, Just the Facts, Ma'am. That's who Luke is. He's a doctor, and he's really, uh, it's really important for him to explain heaven come to earth, joy to the world, as a person who is a, a clinician, someone who sees things and really paying attention to the facts. And so if you've ever read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice over and over, Luke gives lots and lots of details. Sometimes it feels like random details. Sometimes it even feels like too much information. And, and sometimes as you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you're, you're wondering to yourself, why is he telling us all these things? In fact, uh, Luke 1 begins this morning, uh, in those days when, when Herod was king of Judea. And you're like, why do we need to know that? That's just who Luke is. He is someone who's paying attention to the facts and what he's trying to communicate by when Herod was king of Judea, what he's helping us to understand or wants us to understand is this really happened. This is not a fable. This is not a made-up story. And so he's 
a, a historian. He's known as one of the, the greatest historians of all time. In fact, Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts of the Apostles. And as you read through these two books over and over, you see these lots and lots of facts, lots of details. He was a historian. Luke was also an outsider. He was a Gentile. He's the only known writer in the New Testament who was not Jewish. He wasn't writing to a Jewish audience. He was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to those who are far from understanding Jewish thought. And why does this matter? Why is it important for us to understand that Luke was a Gentile? Because what Luke is trying to communicate back then and to us today and throughout history is that the gospel is for all people. It's not just for the Jews, as they had believed for so long, that, that God just had a relationship with the Jews only. But there's this significant shift. God not, not only has a relationship with the Jews, but now all of a sudden, God has come, joy to the world, not just for a small group of people, the Jewish people, but for all people. So there's a big shift going on here, and it's important for us to understand who Luke is. The other thing, uh, the, the last thing that I want to just mention about Luke and, and the lens through which he is writing and speaks to us today is that he, have a, he has a very different beginning in how he is describing the gospel of Jesus Christ come into the world. A couple of the gospels begin with genealogies kind of tracing through, uh, you know, all the way back to Adam and so-and-so and up through David and, and, and all the way uh, through with the Old Testament leading up to really trying to show the genealogy and the, the lineage. Luke's like, I, I don't really care about all that. Remember, he's not Jewish. He's not trying to communicate all that genealogy. He is really focused and begins in a place with John the Baptist, as Jeff talked about this morning. For him, it's all about uh, explaining. This is how the story began. And even before uh, God and the angel came to Mary and Joseph, the angel came to another uh, couple uh, that we're going to read about here in just a moment. And so it's got a very different beginning point in understanding the gospel of Jesus. And this is really about a, a gender reveal party, right? Maybe you've uh, been to a gender reveal party and, you know, there's uh, fireworks or balloons or something like that. Yeah, that's not this. But for sure, this is a gender reveal party. It's a boy. And his name is John. So here we go, uh, looking at Luke 1, the backstory, uh, remembering that this is coming from Luke's perspective, describing the events leading up to Luke 2. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So this is a story about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're going to spend some time just really kind of looking at their lives and kind of all that's going on and transform, uh, transforming them this morning. And it says that they were uh, in, the, in the priestly line. They were uh, from descendants of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. 
And you might recall in the Old Testament, Aaron was of the, of the priestly class. He was the guy that was supposed to kind of be that intermediary uh, between God and the people, and he functioned as a, as a priest. Well, over time, uh, people, if you were a male especially, uh, you were born into this. Women were born into it too. They just didn't function as priests. So they were all Aaronites, I guess, if you will, people of descendants of Aaron. And all the men, if you were born in the line of the lineage of Aaron, you were automatic, and if you were a male, you were automatically a priest. And it says that both Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were born into that lineage. So that's the, the first thing. The second thing is it says they were righteous. They were doing the right thing. They were just going through life doing the right thing. Um, but then we learn very quickly that uh, they were childless. They didn't have uh, any children, no offspring. And this was really a problem for them uh, because being Jewish, uh, God, uh, how people, uh, Jewish people viewed children were a blessing from God. And so if you had no children, this literally meant that you were cursed by God. And so here's this couple, Luke wants us to know that they were righteous, they were doing the right thing, and yet there was this contradiction, they appeared to be cursed. And this was really a problem in their society. How could they reconcile that? I mean, we, I could spend the rest of our time this morning kind of talking about this idea of why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that's what's going on here in the story. Good, righteous people, and yet really, really bad. So the story uh, that Luke is presenting to us about the gospel of Jesus from uh, joy to the world, uh, from heaven to earth, it begins with sadness. It begins with brokenness. It begins with lots and lots of, what do we do? Darkness, I guess, if you will. There's no joy to the world. And if you've come here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, uh, I don't have a lot of joy in my own life, well then join the club. Because this is Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. There's no joy to the world in their life, just sadness, heartbreak, and loneliness. God, where are you in the midst of all of it? Now, we are living in a time where there is lots of no joy to the world in our community and in our nation. I went online this week and, and looked at a couple different studies in terms of kind of what's going on in terms of people's happiness level, their, their joy level, if you will. And I ran across one study uh, from the CDC uh, that said that antidepressants and heartburn medications are the, the most prescribed and consumed medicines today. Antidepressants and heartburn medicines. And it's up over 30%, these prescriptions, as well as uh, people just consuming more and more medication. 30% over the past three years, because we as a society, we are not doing well. We're sick. There's lots and lots of sadness around us. According to the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, the drug and alcohol death, uh, death rate since the pandemic has doubled. I mean, there are more death by suicide, drug, and alcohol overdoses than ever before. If you look at some of the stats, or I was looking at some of the graphs, I mean, it's, it's kind of going up, up, up over the past couple decades, and then you look at about 2016 to 2020, um, and then you, you, you hit the pandemic, and the numbers just spike. It's amazing 
how many people are dying by suicide, drug overdose, alcohol-related uh, death. It's, and it's, you know, honestly, it's, it's, it's really bad among teenagers. I mean, we are at all-time highs for uh, young people committing suicide today. The drug epidemic that just continues to filter through our society. It's, and it's especially cute for our young women, teenage girls into their 20s. They're not doing well, folks. We're not doing well as a nation. And then I found a Pew study um, that uh, for the first time in, in polling history by the Pew uh, Research Foundation, uh, they asked Americans, uh, where would you rate yourself on a happiness scale? You know, everything from not happy at all to not happy, uh, happy uh, to very happy. And this, for the first time, according to the Pew uh, Research study, we have now flopped uh, or flipped, however you want to say it, from being a society uh, there was once upon a time, uh, three people would say, three people would say, yep, I'm either happy or very happy, and one person would say, I'm not happy. Those numbers since the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, have flipped. So that now every one person who is either happy or very happy, three people are saying, I'm not happy, I'm not very happy at all. This is our society, and you know these people. Maybe this is even you who are here today. We are living in a dark time, and our nation is really struggling, folks. So this is the nation, uh, this is the, the, the world in which uh, uh, Mary and Joseph lived as well. It was a time of lots of sadness, lots of brokenness. But Jesus tells us, what, don't be surprised. You have an enemy, he says in John 10.10. 10, and the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy that's what the enemy wants to do in our lives. He wants to kill your joy. He wants to steal your family. And he wants to destroy your happiness. This is what the enemy does. And he's attacking us over and over. And this is, Jesus says, this is why I came into the world. Because the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life. All right. Uh, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, just to review, Zechariah, as we said, he's a priest. And uh, there were a lot of priests. In fact, in the first century, uh, historians believe there were about 20,000 priests. That's a lot of priests for one temple, right? I mean, what if, um, you know, somebody said to you, hey, how many church staff do you have there at Faith? Uh, I don't know, about 20,000. I mean, I think we can all agree that that's a lot of church staff for one temple. Uh, but that's what they had. And so it's like, well, how do you manage? How do you manage all those 20,000 priests? Because that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do their whole life long. Well, what they did is they created a system of rotating in uh, to serve as priests. Most of the time, you're kind of doing your own thing. But twice a year, if you were a priest, uh, you would go to Jerusalem and you would serve in the temple for just one week. You would get to do that twice throughout the year. And then the other 50 weeks out of the year, I suppose, you're just kind of chilling. So it's, it seems like it's a pretty good gig, right? 
so they're waiting. And so, so this is the time where uh, Zechariah and, and uh, Elizabeth, they go into Jerusalem and he is doing what priests do. Uh, and, and, he, and that part of that is going into uh, the temple and going into the holy place. Now, it's not the holy of holies, but it's, there's a curtain just outside the holy of holies, and that's where he would go and light incense, and that's where the altar was. And so twice a day, the priest was chosen. Again, there are just too many priests, and so they would, they would have to like draw straws or have like a lottery for, to decide who's going to go in and light the incense, who's going to go in and uh, offer a sacrifice of an animal or a, a, a grain offering and, and put it on the altar so that it can be burned and sacrificed to God. And it says that on one day, all of a sudden, Zechariah, he was chosen. He got the lottery ticket. Oh, I get to go in and light uh, these, the, uh, give these offerings, this incense, and burn it before the Lord. And then after, uh, the priest uh, would offer the sacrifice on the altar. He would come back out. There's a you know, courtyard of lots and lots of people, and he would pray the Arionic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine on you and be gracious to you. We know this blessing, right? We've, we've sung it. We've said it. And the people would be like, ah, God received our blessing. And then they would move on uh, with their day. Okay, so that's what's going on. Uh, let's see, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And I can about imagine Zechariah. Remember, he's, he's an old guy now. He's probably thinking to himself, what prayer? What, what, I mean, I, I've prayed a lot of prayers throughout my life, right? What prayer are you talking about, angel of the Lord? Angel says, your prayer has been heard. And of course, we know this story, that uh, the, the, the prayer that was heard was regarding Elizabeth, this idea that she's barren, she, they don't have any kids. And it's got to be a very confusing conversation because he's thinking, I have prayed lots and lots of prayers. The, the prayer from last week, the prayer for last month. Which prayer are you talking about? And I want to pause for just a moment this morning because I think there's something really profound here going on in the story and in the text to remind us about prayer. We oftentimes, maybe, maybe it's just me, that, that when I pray a prayer to God, that somehow over time that prayer just kind of dissipates and it goes away. Right? That, that you know, maybe I, I prayed a prayer and um, God didn't answer the prayer according to how I wanted God to answer the prayer. And it's just like, oh, that prayer is gone. It's just kind of evaporated, you know, kind of gone into the, the atmosphere or whatever. But what is going on here, what the angel tells us, is that our prayers, even when we pray a prayer, they don't have an expiration date on them. So the prayers that you may be prayed when you were nine years old, it's not like that prayer is just like void and null, or it's just kind of past expiration date that that's gone. But our prayers continue to linger on in the heavenly realms. And I think that's pretty powerful. This past week, I went into the fridge, opened it up, and uh, was going to get some milk to pour on some cereal, and it said, um, uh, you know, expiration date November 6th. I'm like, eh, what do I do here? 
I just poured it out in the sink, you know, of course, and chunks, you know, are coming out of the milk container kind of thing. But that's what we do with things that are expired, right? We just, we pour them out, we get rid of them. But now when it comes to prayer, because we have to be reminded, and what the angel is telling us is that our prayers, whenever you pray that prayer, it's not gone. And so the angel says to Zechariah, I heard your prayer. And I wonder if Zechariah had been praying that prayer 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. I don't know how long he'd been praying. I'm guessing he stopped praying that prayer because it says he was very old. And I don't know about you, but sometimes if I'm like, you know, we're at the point where it's impossible. I mean, we're, we're just not having kids. Let's pray for something else. And I don't know, the, the, the text doesn't tell us how long he'd been praying that prayer or maybe when he stopped praying that prayer. Maybe he was still praying. Maybe he was praying for a miracle. We don't know. But I think in our own prayer lives, it's a great reminder that just because God has not answered your prayer yet doesn't mean he's not going to show up. Just because maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago doesn't mean that God's not going to show up in the future and God's going to come to you and say, hey, I heard your prayer. I'm going to answer your prayer. And you'd be like, ah, what prayer? I don't even remember praying that prayer. God's like, I do. And I'm going to answer that prayer. So just, uh, again, I think it's really important. There's, um, we're, we're hearing something about our prayer lives. Verse 14. Your wife Elizabeth uh, will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before uh, he is born. So it's, hey, Zechariah, you can have a baby. And not just any baby, you're going to have a boy. It's going to be a boy. I mean, it's this, this gender reveal. God just comes and tells uh, Zechariah, you are going to have a boy. And when we hear the name John, I want to be clear that this is John the Baptist. It's uh, sometimes known as John the Baptizer. Not the gospel writer of John, not John the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, not John of, of Revelation, but John the Baptist, the one who is going to um, point to and prophesy about the coming of Jesus. Now, it's interesting when we think about prophecy uh, pointing to Jesus, we can think about uh, hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. I've read that there are somewhere between three and 400 different prophecies that point to Jesus. But the interesting thing is John the Baptist was also prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so we're going to uh, read a little bit about this in just a minute here. So let's go to verse 16 as the angel is describing uh, to Zechariah who John is going to be. He says, He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, it sounds like it's an Old Testament text, doesn't it? And so just kind of looking at this, I want to back up 700 years uh, before Jesus. This is what uh, the prophet Isaiah says. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Isaiah wrote that 700 years ago. That's how we began our worship this morning. That's not, talking, that's not a prophecy about Jesus. That's a prophecy about John and that he is going to come. Now fast forward uh, about 300 years. Now we're at about 400 BC. Uh, this is what Malachi, another prophet, writes about John. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then, if that's not enough, Malachi continues to write, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. I mean, over and over throughout the, no the Old Testament, God is saying, I'm going to send this guy, and he's going to be like Elijah. He's going to kind of have that spirit. He's going to move. And then the very last chapter, the very last verse of the Old Testament, this is what Malachi writes. Not about Jesus, but about John. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. The very last verse of the Old Testament is this prophecy about John. It's this acknowledgement that joy is coming. Joy to the world. It's coming. Get ready. And then after the prophet Malachi penned uh, the, the, the Old Testament book of Malachi, it was the last writing in the Old Testament. 400 years pass, and there are no more writings from the prophets. Theologians call this 400 years of silence. Malachi ends this idea that a prophet is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. One of the things I love about this idea of uh, John the Baptist and who he was is he's not only prophesied in the Old Testament, but then, of course, he steps onto the stage in the New Testament. But the really interesting thing uh, about, uh, I think, John is that he is known as the last of the prophets before Jesus comes. And we think about prophets, we think of Old Testament. But, of course, John is in the New Testament. John the Baptist is in the New Testament. So he's yet, the, on the one hand, the, the last prophet and the one who is there to prepare the way of the Lord. Joy is coming, folks. Get ready. Zechariah uh, asked the angel, how can this be? How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you of this good news. Now, I don't think most of us really get what's going on here, but I think this is the funny part of the story. I think this is the comical part. I think this is the ironic part of the story. And people who read this for the very first time, certainly the ancients, they're like, okay, this is funny. God, God's got a sense of humor, right? So imagine that Zechariah is standing in the temple. It's just him doing his uh, incense thing before the altar. He has a conversation with an angel. And then he says, wait a second, how can this be? Hello, you're talking to an angel, right? So why in the world would he question an angel of the Lord? He knows full well that this is an angel. And yet he questions this angel. So he's standing there looking at a miracle, at a manifestation from heaven come to earth. And the, the, this messenger gives him a message. He's like, huh? How can this be? I'm old. 
You guys don't think that's funny? I, I, when I read this, I'm like, that's, that's hilarious. I, this is, this is how, how dumb is he, right? Bless your heart, as I said a couple weeks ago. He says, hey, I'm Gabriel. I'm Gabriel the angel. He gives him his name. And, and Gabriel hasn't shown up for about 500 years. The last time we read about Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is in Daniel 8 and 9, where uh, Gabriel is telling Daniel, the prophet, about the coming Messiah. Uh, in many years to come, about 500 years later. And Gabriel is this special angel. He's not an archangel. He's, he's a mailman. He's a deliverer of messages from God to earth. And so when he says, hey, I'm just here to deliver the message, you and your wife are going to have a baby. And Zechariah questions it. Uh, verse 20. And now, because you didn't believe, uh, you, you will be silent. You will not be able to speak until the day that this happens because you did not believe my words, which came true at the appointed time. Meanwhile, the people uh, were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Now again, this... I think we miss the humor in this. I think we miss the irony in this. So the very person who is going to be the father of John the Baptist can't talk. I mean, John the Baptist is that guy who is, you know, out in the wilderness yakking and yelling, and he's the guy with the megaphone, turn or burn, you know. He's the, 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 his dad can't talk, and yet his son has a reputation for not being able to stop talking about Jesus. Do you hear the irony in this? What's going on? I mean, it's, 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 it's absurd. It's, it's, it's funny. I mean, John the Baptist was arrested and beheaded because he couldn't stop talking. And here on this day, Zechariah has been muted because he does not believe the words of Gabriel. And then he comes out of the temple. He can't talk. And, you know, they're all expecting the Aaronic blessing. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And they're like, well, where is this guy? Well, why is he not coming out? What's taking him so long? And he comes out and he, he's not talking. And it says he's, that he's, he's starting to do, uh, you know, these different, you know, hand, hand signals, hand motions to kind of show what's going on and, and why he can't talk and all that's going on. I mean, it's, it's, it's charades, right? And, and so I'm reading this thinking, what does that look like? You know, what, what kind of hand gesturing is he doing that he can't, he just had a... Uh, uh, an encounter with an angel. Sounds like, you know, I mean, how do you even do charades to kind of describe, I just saw an angel? You know, I mean, I, that, that's what's going on here. So it's a game of charades where Zechariah is standing in front of all the people and he's explaining, I, I, I saw an angel and, and the angel said that I'm an old man um, and, and, and my wife and I are going to have a baby. So he's just kind of probably doing this and they're like, what's going on with this guy? And not only this baby, but this baby's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one to point to the Messiah. I mean, how do you do, how do, you do charades with all that? I mean, guys, this is funny. There's lots going on here in the story. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So the charades are over. Somehow they figure out, you know, that this vision, uh, this encounter that Zechariah had. And it says they went home and uh, Elizabeth became pregnant and then she's in seclusion for five months. 
And you're like, okay, what's behind the five months thing? I mean, there must be something with the numbers there. I don't think so. I think Luke, again, being a doctor, he's just giving us random details of the story. And I don't think there's anything behind five months other than she was in seclusion for five months. And we are, we're probably asking ourselves, why does he give us that much detail? That's just who Luke is. He's a historian. He's trying to give us lots and lots of detail because that's how it happened. He's saying again in those five months, Folks, this isn't made up. This really happened. This is how it happened. And I think we then get to the most important part of the story. So if you've kind of tuned out thus far in the sermon, I want you to just come back with me. Wake up from your nap this morning. Come back from that place of daydreaming and hear these words from Elizabeth. The Lord has done this for me. Elizabeth articulates the miracle. She articulates and she speaks that God is moving in her life. She acknowledges that she didn't just randomly become pregnant, but that God did this in her life. I think it's a beautiful proclamation so the story begins with lots of sadness, brokenness, and darkness. Zechariah has this encounter with an angel. And then all of a sudden, there's this glimmer of hope and a miracle. And when the miracle shows up, she acknowledges and articulates that joy has come from the heavens to the earth. Joy to the world the Lord is coming. Let every heart prepare him room. I think that's what she's articulating in this one phrase. The Lord has done this for me. I think what she's saying is, I see God moving. God is moving in my life. And so to kind of close all this out this morning, to kind of wrap all this up, what do we do with this text for our own lives? The invitation I want to give to us comes in 2024 for what we do with this text, this idea, the Lord has come to me. A little bit ago, I told you about these Bibles that we, we passed out earlier. And I want to invite you to read this Bible in 2024. It's a reading plan. And for most of us, it's going to be about 15 minutes a day, Genesis through Revelation. Some of you, it's going to take a little bit longer than 15 minutes a day. Some of you uh, are going to be able to read this in, I don't know, 10 to 12 minutes a day. That's okay. It's, it's just an invitation to be consistently in God's Word. And we're going to read these Bibles in 2024 through a unique lens. Most of the time when we read the Bible, we study Scripture for understanding, but in 2024, I want you to take off that lens and put on a new lens. I want you to put on the lens of Elizabeth. And in 2024, as you're reading through your Bible every single day, I want you to see how God is moving in his word and through you. And how God might be speaking to you through his word. 
So this is not an academic uh, understanding, but this is very experiential. You hear where I'm going with this? This is going to be a different way of reading Scripture next year. And this is going to be a little bit challenging for a lot of us, probably for all of us. And we'll talk more about this. We're calling these God sightings. And the idea is as we're reading through Scripture, as each one of us is individually reading through Scripture, we're going to just invite God to just speak to us, to show up and just um, make us aware of how he is moving in the world, in our lives. And we're going to share these God sightings with one another. And a God sighting is simply how God, the divine, comes to earth and meets us and touches us. And my prayer is that as we share these stories more and more throughout 2024 of how we see God moving in his word in our lives, we're going to have more and more open eyes to see these things going on all around. As Jeff said earlier, God's still doing miracles. And I'm absolutely convinced that oftentimes we don't see the miracles that God is doing in our lives is because we're not looking for them. So the invitation in 2024 is to be, we're going to look for them. We're going to look for the miracles every single day in our lives in 2024 as we read through God's word. And then we're going to share those stories with one another. My prayer as we think about how God is coming to this dark world in which we still live, that joy to the world, we can still experience it. But we have to open our eyes and see all around us, the ways in which his Holy Spirit is moving among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this remarkable story of you uh, sending Gabriel uh, to proclaim to Gabriel and to Elizabeth that you are still moving, that you are still breathing, that you are still listening and answering prayers. It was a dark world then, it's a dark world now. And God, I believe your Holy Spirit is still encountering your people. And that, God, you are still performing miracles. And so, Lord, as we're thinking about a new year, God, may you just open our eyes, open our hearts and our lives, because, Lord, we're, we're collectively tired. We're collectively worn out. We're collectively discouraged. We pray for the light from the heavens, the light of Jesus Christ to come in our lives again and restore our joy. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.